No one heard that prayer except me in the first row. Me in the first row. That was just for us, guys. <laughs> Good morning, church. What a joy to be together, huh? Listen, I'm going to pre-warn you right now. I am doped out of my mind on cold medicine. And so if I wander off into gibberish in the middle of this sermon, I need you guys to make an agreement that you will all continue to smile and say amen. I will make my way back to the text. It may just take me a minute of rambling, but I will get back there, I promise. So uh, anyway, um, with that being said, so we're continuing our short series today on a kind of a theology of the church. Last, And I won't jump straight into it. Last week, we started by kind of putting together this working definition of the church. I said this like a bajillion times, so I'm going to repeat it again. Uh, The church is Jesus' people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus. I think this helped us kind of dig into this question of what is God's church. I think our text today will help clarify that, will kind of help cement that working definition we have. But I think our, our main work today is going to be to ask the next logical question in that progression. It's essentially this. If that above definition of what the church is, if that is true, Jesus people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus, then what does the church do? What is the task? What is the work of the church here in this world? My prayer today is that the answer to this question would light a fire in our bones. And this would be the kind of thing that gets us up and gets us moving because the reality is, beloved, the church of Jesus is the hands and feet of Jesus carrying out his work in this world while we await his return. This means that the church of Jesus is about the work of killing the curse in this world. The church of Jesus is the advanced outpost of the kingdom of God in this broken and sinful world. We get to join with Christ and bringing the kingdom to earth as we await his return and its permanent establishment. John Piper has this cool image in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's his book on mission. He's actually talking about prayer in this context, but he, but he gives this, this image where he basically challenges Christians to take on a spiritual warfare mentality, not a spiritual peacetime mentality. The idea that the, the kingdom of God has invaded this broken and cursed world and the church of Jesus, we as his followers, are the advanced forces sent to liberate the oppressed and conquered peoples. Beloved, the church of Jesus is called to an amazing task. And by the way, it will absolutely be accomplished. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient, which means his work will come to fruition. The kingdom of God wins Spoiler alert. But here's the thing. We get to be a part of it. You get to be a part of that. You get to join in on that work. Why would we miss out? Right? So, to talk about that, we're going to be in Matthew 16 today. If you guys want to go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a physical copy of the Bible with you today, we have house Bibles kind of spread throughout the room. They're underneath the chairs. You can snag one. By the way, if you're in this space today and you don't own a physical copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to grab one of those house Bibles and just take it home or even talk to one of our pastors. We will get you one that is nicer uh, than the house Bibles. Um, We really believe in the importance of access 
to God's word for God's people. This is a relatively famous text. It's historically been uh, pretty controversial, but I'm gonna argue today for terrible reasons. So we're gonna put this into its larger context and then walk through kind of what Jesus is teaching here, how the apostles respond, and then what Jesus is teaching means for us as the church today. So we're jumping into the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, If you don't remember, we're actually gonna be working through the whole Gospel of Matthew as a church. We're jumping back into that Matthew series in a couple of weeks, Uh, but it will literally be next year before we work our way to Matthew 16. So I thought it was okay uh, to address it today. So what's going on, uh, we're in this interesting part of the narrative in Matthew 16. Jesus's ministry has been going on for several years at this point. He's performed miracles. He's proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's ticked off the established religious leaders to no end. Uh, and, And out of it all, he's gained this massive following. At this point in Jesus's ministry, his following is so large that it's literally borderline impossible for him to engage any kind of privacy or rest. If he returns to his hometown of Capernaum, uh, him and his followers are mobbed by folk who are seeking miracles and healing literally 24-7. The text goes out of its way to describe the fact that the house gets so full, they have to pile up the furniture. They don't have space or time to sit and eat meals. Like People are mobbing Jesus to get access to his ministry. And what's interesting is that normally, Jesus actually kind of seems to thrive. In this ministry, he gladly, joyfully pours himself out to serve those in need. But then something interesting happens. You can read about this part in Matthew 14 and 15. John the Baptist is arrested and eventually killed. And when Jesus gets word that his cousin, but also his his confidant in ministry, is dead, he seeks out some space for some rest and solitude with his closest followers. Almost as if he, he needs to take a minute to engage this, to mourn, to process. And what what happens over the course of these two chapters is that Jesus keeps attempting to take a retreat with his followers and the mob keeps following him. Like it keeps getting out where he's going to rest, right? And the mob just shows up. And it's, you, you get this almost comical image of Jesus moving further and further and further away from civilization, trying to catch a break, and people figuring out where he is and follow, just mobbing him. Even in the wilderness, this is actually where some of Jesus' most famous miracles occur is in this weird little narrative. This is when he walks on water. He crossed, crossing back and forth over the Sea of Galilee. This is when he feeds the 5,000 in the wilderness because they've literally followed him so so far out in the middle of nowhere, there's no food for anyone, right? Like Jesus is actually still like thriving, pouring himself out to serve the masses, but he also was going, I need some space. And so our text picks up, Jesus has retreated really far away from Jewish society. Uh, at this point, he's, he's basically put himself and his, and his closest followers outside of Jewish culture. They, they arrive at a place called Caesarea Philippi. I think we have a, a map to come up here, do we? Oh, okay. Well, uh, if you were to look at your Bible map, Galilee uh, is kind of the northern part of Judea. And Caesarea Philippi is far to the north and east. It's, it's about as far northeast as you can go and still be in this larger Roman province. It's actually, um, it, it's, it's the area that's ruled by Philip the Tetrarch. This is the son of Herod the Great. Uh, he, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided up between five different people. Philip was one of them. He rebuilt this city, Caesarea Philippi, kind of trying to make it kind of the crown jewel of his part of the kingdom, which was 
pretty terrible part of the kingdom in general. Uh, but um, th- this city is basically completely Hellenized. There's little to no Jewish influence here. And so Jesus arrives at the city. Finally, he's far enough away that he gets a quiet minute with his friends. And this is where our text picks up in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he gave the disciples orders not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. Jesus, we ask for these next few minutes as we, as we take some time just to sit in your word, to consider just how good you are, Lord, and consider your heart for your church and your heart for this world and the work you have called us into. God, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes. Lord, I pray that you would cut through, um, cut through the baggage, the calluses, the, even the joys and excitements, whatever it is, Lord, the stuff we've brought into this space with us this morning, the things that are drawing our attention, our thoughts even now. God, I pray that you would take a moment and you would push those aside and you would give us tender, open hearts to hear from you today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do your ministry. Teach us, remind us, convict us, challenge us, Lord, that every single one of us might leave this space today having heard from you something our heart actually needs, actually being challenged by you to walk in greater obedience and greater holiness. God, we love you. We trust you for this, so we pray in your name. Amen. So Caesarea Philippi is built around this large stone cliff face. Uh, I don't have any of my slides, right? Okay, so if you, if you actually, you can, you can Google this and look at this city. There's this massive cliff face that shoots up. Anywhere in Caesarea Philippi, you can see this massive flat stone cliff. And there's a couple caves out of it, a couple underground springs. It's actually gorgeous. This is one of the main tributaries that feeds the Jordan River. And there's this underground spring that springs out and burbles out into these like foot-tall little cascades as it works its way out of the city. It it was a place where people often went for rest and respite. It was also a place that was pretty sacred in pagan and Roman worship. There was a large temple to Pan uh, built around this underground spring. So so this is a a well-known spot by this point in history, but it's also a really beautiful space to get away. It's the kind of space you want to take a nature walk and just consider life and consider things. And so you can imagine this scene as Jesus is walking with his 12 followers through this beautiful place, burbling brooks behind them, this large stone edifice, processing the experience of the last several months, not only John the Baptist's death and the increasing just persecution against them, but the wild popularity of their ministry, the sheer number of miracles they've witnessed and all these things. And as they're walking along, Jesus drops this loaded question. Who do people say that I am? 
Now, his followers have been with him the whole time. They know exactly how controversial Jesus' ministry has been. But he asks them all the same. He asks all 12 of his followers, and they all kind of jump in with these answers. Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. Everyone knows something is up with Jesus. You can't avoid, when a guy starts walking around miraculously healing people, right? You kind of stand up and take notice. When he starts walking around miraculously healing dozens, hundreds, tons of people in multiple regions for multiple years, right? Like you can't not take notice, but nobody seems to really be tapped into exactly what God is doing. Jesus is doing all this miraculous work, but his teaching doesn't line up with the established religious expectation of messianic ministry. So they don't know what to do with him. It brings to mind for me John 1.10. He was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. Nobody knows exactly what to do with Jesus, which is why it's a really important point that he's about to teach to his people. In verse 15, he drops this bomb. But you, he asks them, who do you say I am? He cuts straight to the heart of the point. You guys have been with me this whole time. You have seen every bit of this. What do you think is going on? And Peter steps up and answers very directly. Peter, the loud and quick one, right? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's important to note here, by the way, because this is going to speak a little bit into the controversy of this text. Peter is speaking, but it's important to note, this question was given to the entirety of the group. Peter is speaking, but he's speaking for the whole of the apostles. Jesus' question was not directed at Peter, but to the apostles. He's stepping up as a leader and speaking within the group. And what follows is a couple of verses that are as famous as they are argued over. Maybe not as much anymore, but for a long time, these verses were a really big deal. These next few lines of Jesus' blessing and his teaching to Peter have been a major point of conflict between the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and the Protestant Church about the authority of, and role of the Apostle Peter. And as, and as a result of that, the Pope. This is not the point of our text today, as we'll see. Uh, but I feel like I, ha- I have to kind of really quickly acquaint us with uh, what's actually going on here for us to be able to move through and actually talk about uh, what's going on in the text. So the basics of the argument is this. Roman Catholics tend to hold that Jesus here is giving a unique and special authority to the Apostle Peter. They hold that Jesus' gift of the keys and of binding and loosing were specifically for Peter and that Peter himself is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. This means that not only did Peter have a special authority, but all those who come in line after him take up his special and specific authority and in his office of the bishopric of Rome. Orthodox Orthodox Church holds actually a really similar view They believe essentially the same thing. They just don't believe that authority was passed on uh, from the bishop to bishop. They believe that's kind of spread out over the entirety of the bishops. But the Protestants, when they came along a while later, uh, they made a pretty intense argument against that understanding of this text. Generally, the argument of the Protestants is that Jesus is not referring to Peter, but is referring to his confession of Jesus' messiahship as the rock upon which he will build his church. 
and that the, the, those gift things aren't, aren't necessarily specifically to Peter and his office. And that's kind of the basics of what people squibble over in this text. I actually think the best reading, and this is one that's gaining a lot of traction amongst Protestant theologians, is the idea that although this passage does primarily focus on Peter, it's using him as an exemplar of the role of an individual within the church. And I'm going to flesh that out for us. I think that makes a lot of sense for this text. So, so having set that up, let's walk through this section and see what we can see here. I think what we'll see is that Jesus, through Peter, gives us a really cool reminder of some of the aspects of our identity as the church, but also gives us some really good language for the purpose and work of the church. So this opens with Jesus speaking this blessing over Peter. God himself revealed this truth to Simon. This is not because Peter is somehow spiritually exceptional. This is not some expression of amazing spiritual prowess or wisdom. God himself gives Peter the revelation to recognize Jesus as Messiah. I think this is a powerful reminder for us about the identity of the church. We are Jesus people, right? Not because the people in the church are somehow better or more spiritual than the rest of humanity, that we were able to figure stuff out that our brothers and or the, the people we know, our neighbors and family and friends weren't able to, but because God is gracious and he opened our eyes to the truth and power of the gospel. Now then we get this, this play on words centered around Jesus' nickname for Peter. And by the way, this is the root of a lot of this controversy and a lot of kind of the historical back and forth over the under, uh, understanding of this text. Remember, Peter's name is not actually Peter. His name is Simon. Jesus gave him the nickname Peter or Petrus, which literally means little rock, uh, kind of like calling someone rocky, but like a little more specific than that, right? Jesus gave Simon a nickname that connected to his personality. Peter was the rock, hard-headed, indelicate, right? But here's actually a more important point that I think connects what we're talking about. Uh, good for building. That's a weird personality trait, but, but hold that in your mind. Stick, stick with me here. See, in our text, Jesus first calls him by his real name. And by the way, his full name, Simon Bar-Jonah, his, his actual full name, or Simon, son of Jonah. This is a way of letting him know he's about to use his nickname intentionally, right? Like, I'm going to call you by your nickname, and it, and it means something. Simon is Peter. Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, remember, his nickname, Petros, means little rock. Not pebble, not like gravel, but it mean, think, think like brick, Right? This is actually a common term used by laborers who are building with, with natural stone, a little rock. But Jesus says, on this rock, Petros, big rock, I will build my church. So what's the big rock upon which Jesus will build his church? Remember the image of where we're at. Anywhere you are in Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, you can see this massive stone cliff, right? This huge edifice. So you can see Jesus using the nickname and the space they are to kind of build an analogy. Simon, you are my bro. You are Peter. You are the little rock. But on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And they're standing near this massive stone edifice. He's making a contrast between his friend, the little rock, and the massive big rock they're standing next to so what's the larger thing? 
What's the larger rock upon which God is going to build his church? Well, it's very obviously this confession of, of Peter. Peter said, you are the Messiah. Not something Peter came up with his own will, something God revealed to him. And Jesus is affirming, yes, yes, I'm that truth. I'm that truth, that massive stone. I am the Messiah. On that, I will build my church. You have to remember that Jesus was a laborer by trade. He was a carpenter, and because of that, we tend to think of him kind of hold away in a workshop making chairs and stuff, which he very likely did. But in this day, carpenters were not restricted just to woodwork. They often did kind of just general construction work and were often very skilled at foundation laying and basic stone building. Jesus was probably a little closer to what we would think of as like a general contractor, right? So him giving Peter his nickname, Peter, which was a term used by builders for the small stones they would use for building up walls and even small house foundations, is, would be similar to a guy being like, you're tough, I'm going to call you Cinderblock, <laughs> right? And that's probably not how Jesus did it. But Jesus says to Simon, you're a brick, you are a brick, but on this, on this foundation, I'm going to build my church. This foundation of the confession that Peter gives, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus as Messiah, that's the stone cliff face, the massive stone foundation, the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Think back to our text from last week. You know, we use, we may be, like we, we, we looked at this, this word picture, right, of us as living stones that build up the church. We may be the stones of the church, but we're shaped off the cornerstone, Jesus, the true foundation. And who wrote that text that we read last week, right? Peter, the guy who understands this idea, the true bedrock, the true foundation is Christ. We are the small stones shaped off of him that builds up the temple. The church is built, beloved, on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. But we also shouldn't be quick to dismiss Peter in this text. Jesus is giving him special attention. God would work through Peter as the first vocal leader within the church, and his word would carry a lot of weight. God would preach through Peter at Pentecost. God would use Peter to include Gentiles in the covenant when he preached to Cornelius. Protestant theologians, I think, make a mistake when they over-theologize this text and kind of, kind of just not look at the importance of Peter, right? Jesus does give a special connect, has a special friendship, a special connection with Peter. And Peter's authority in the early church is important for us, and I think paints a picture. But on the flip side of that, I think Roman Catholics miss the point when they make this text about Peter. Peter is simply for us a really good picture of what it looks like to be a part of Jesus' church and to join in his work of the church. He's an exemplar for us. So when Jesus hands Peter the keys and gives him the authority to bind and loose, this is not some unique gift given to Peter and reserved just for his office or whatever bishopric he ends up with. Rather, this is a gift given by Jesus to his church to accomplish the work of the church. So I think what we can do today is let's take a minute to look at the tools that Christ has handed his church and see if that gives us some good language for the actual work that he's called us to do. Remember, the church is the Jesus people gathered with Jesus around the gospel of Jesus. Let's look at our tools and see what we do together. 
So the first one we see here is keys. Jesus uses this phrase, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I read this first and thought, is this, is this just like Jesus' version of my dad letting me borrow the keys to the GT500? Because uh, if so, I will need those after this is over. Uh, no, This is a way of saying the church stands at the entrance of the church. It's a, it's a weird sentence, but, but hold on to that. The church stands at the entrance of the church. Much is made, like much is made of the keys of the kingdom in, in, in how it connects to the idea of excommunication, right? The keys mean the church gets to decide who's out, right? And, and, and there's actually some importance to that idea. The church is responsible for protecting and proclaiming right doctrine. If someone rejects what Christ has revealed and taught about himself, the church must stand firm on the truth of the gospel and not count someone among the church who rejects the gospel, right? But excommunication is not about removing someone's salvation or locking them out of the kingdom. The church doesn't have that authority. That's not what we get to do. We ultimately cannot know if someone is saved or not. We're human beings, right? That's a matter between someone and Christ. But if the church can't recognize that salvation, perhaps because of unrepentant sin patterns that run contrary to Christ, we do exercise the keys by declaring someone not in fellowship until they show evidence of repentance and salvation. And that's a real thing. That's an intense thing. Church doesn't like to talk about that importance of excommunication, but that's a real thing. That's a way the church exercises this tool of the keys. But I'm going to tell you guys, that is not the primary purpose of the keys. It's a tool. This part is so vital. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are much less about keeping folk out than they are about letting people in. The keys are for unlocking the door to let people in. Consider Peter's own ministry, preaching at Pentecost, proclaiming the gospel, preaching to the religious leaders, giving them more and more chances to repent, preaching to Cornelius and the Gentiles. He seemed much more concerned with using those keys to open the door wide and hold it as wide as possible. I think we should be as well. The second tool given, binding and loosing. This is an established term in Judaism referring to allowing or denying certain behaviors or beliefs as within or outside the law. By giving this authority to this church, Jesus is affirming, first and foremost, by the way, that the old ways and laws are no longer sufficient to the needs of his church. It's a really important understanding here. Jesus is telling his church, you're going to have to you have more than just Torah to understand the life that I have for you. But... But it's also this idea the church will have a responsibility to help one another live fully holy lives in connection with Christ. Binding and loosing is about us helping each other live out our lives in thought and in action in line with the heart of Christ. These two tools, I think if you kind of look at this, right, they point inside and outside the church. The keys allow the church to go outside and bring more folk in. The binding and loosing allow the church to help those in the church grow in holiness. To me, this brings to mind Jesus' final instructions to his church before ascending to heaven in Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission, Jesus gives this command to his church, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, right? I think these connect really well. The keys push you out. They push you to go out, find folk, bring them in, hold the door open. This is, I think, what Jesus called disciple-making, right? 
And that binding and loosing pushes us to teach those disciples to obey everything Jesus commanded, what we call discipleship. So what does the church do? What do these two tools point us toward in terms of our work as the church? Well, beloved, to put it as simply as possible, the church does the work of Jesus in this world. We make disciples, and we help those disciples grow in holiness and intimacy with Christ. The church, beloved, is an outpost of Jesus in this cursed and broken world. A little piece of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And while we await the kingdom's full coming, we do the work of the kingdom here and now. This is the work that Jesus left for us. To go out, to proclaim, to draw more in, to hold that gate open as wide as possible, to to sit amongst the brothers and sisters and challenge them to grow in holiness, to live in obedience to Christ, to be more like him, to do this work continually, the work Jesus was doing in his ministry, the work that continues until his return, while we wait for him. We're to take those keys and open that gate as wide as we can. This means seeking out the lost, proclaiming the gospel to them. This means doing everything we can to open the gate wide. By the way, that doesn't mean bending the truth, as many progressive Christians in our context do. We stand firm on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the God-man who was crucified and rose again to save us from the power of sin and death. His Messiahship, that gospel, that's the firm bedrock upon which the church is built and upon which the church stands. Opening the gate wide does not mean sacrificing truth, but it does mean being gracious, being winsome. It means learning not to be shocked by the world acting like the world. Can we sit in that truth for a moment? I think many of us shy away from gospel proclamation simply because we have spent so much time cloistered away with just other believers, that we've turned our faith into a subculture and the lostness of the world around us makes us uncomfortable. It's shocking and distasteful and so we avoid it. Love, if you want to swing that gate open wide and invite people in, it means you cannot be shocked by what the world has to offer. Can't be shocked when the world acts like the world, when sin sins, when dead is stinky. That's how it works. It means learning to live and proclaim the gospel from a place of humility, not smug superiority. Beloved, you are not better than the lost. You're not. You did not get into the kingdom of God by your amazing wit or by your hard work or by your holiness or by your pedigree. The Father had mercy on you. He opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. You are no better than the most egregious sinner but by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Open the gates wide means learning to speak with compassion and intelligence into people's real concerns and their real worries. It means not just beating people over the head with the idea to repent and believe now, but actually engaging their genuine concerns. Beloved, you need to know, you need to hear this. When you think about our cultural moment, our cultural context, the cultural assumption is that Christian belief and Christian ethics are immoral. You do not stand on the cultural high ground when you proclaim the truth of Christ. 
The exclusivity of Christ and the ethics of the kingdom are distasteful to our place and time. They are considered morally wrong when you stand up and proclaim that Christ is love. That Christ loves all that he desires that all might come into the kingdom. Your neighbor, in, in by the way, genuine engagement, may very well push back and say, well, then why does he not, why does he have such strict restrictions on sexual morality? Why does he disallow the LGBTQ plus community? Why does he care who, how people get married or who they love or how they practice their sexuality if they're adults and they're consenting? Why does God engage in that and put himself there? Why does he push those people out? From a place of genuine concern. Because from the cultural perspective, your ethics are wrong. The Christ's restrictions on things like sexual ethics, are immoral. Think about that. People you're engaging, they look at you and go, that's bad. That's not loving people. That's not caring for people. If you want to open the gates wide, you must teach yourself to engage these ideas with grace and humility. That's difficult. That requires education. That requires compassion. That requires not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought it's such an easy temptation in our culture, in our moment, to bend the truth and just say, yeah, you know what? God is love, so he doesn't care about those things. But beloved, we stand on the truth of the word of God and the proclamation of the word of God and the gospel of Jesus, which means he does care about those things. Christ does have an ethical standard for how humans live. And that ethical standard of Christ does not line up with the ethics of our day. And if you want to proclaim the gospel in the world around you, you will have to learn how to do so winsomely not beating people down, not with smug superiority, not with judgment, not with shock, but with grace. Is it not the kindness of God that led you to repentance? Was it not? God was gracious to you. He met you in your sin and your death. He did not respond to you with shock or smug superiority. He responded to you with kindness and grace and patience. He opened your eyes and opened your heart that you might come into the kingdom. And beloved, if you were going to do the work of Christ in this world, you must do the same. You must do the same. When you think about LGBTQ plus issues, the concerns of the poor or the working class, the refugees, the environment, do you scoff and roll your eyes and blow them off? Or do you engage with grace and winsomeness like Christ does? This is what it means to wield those keys in our day right now. It also means, by the way, giving yourself over to the life of your local church. If you're going to bind and loose, if you're going to use those tools, you're going to do that in the context of your church family. Are you challenging your brothers and sisters to grow in holiness and grow in intimacy with Christ? Are you helping your brothers and sisters to see the gospel played out in the actual details of their lives? It's so easy to show up at church on Sunday and show up to your small group and have these pockets, these compartmentalized pockets of Christianity where we sing the songs and we read the verses and we say yes and amen, but we separate that off from the rest of our life. And when we go to work and we go to school and we spend time with our friends and our family, we just don't consider them. And we live however comes naturally to us, whatever flows normally out of our hearts that we allow ourselves to live in. And we don't see the hypocrisy there. It's just such a natural way to engage. Beloved, that's not the way of the gospel. We just sang it. Demands my life, my all, my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. 
Binding and loosing means challenging, helping, guiding, encouraging each other to live out the power of the truth of the gospel holistically. Not just on Sunday morning, but in every detail, every facet of our lives. This requires you, requires you, beloved, to get out of your selfishness and your idleness and actually live a communal life requires you to grow in connection and commitment and love and affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This means you must actually spend time with your church family. It means you actually need to prioritize time with your church family. That's a sacrifice. We live in a fast-paced and busy culture. This means loss of time. This means missing out on other activities. It's a big deal. Because you can't just do this once or twice. You actually have to do this for a while. Because it takes time to grow in enough safety, but also to grow in enough bravery that we actually share our real hearts. If you've been in like a Bible study or a small group long enough, you know what I'm talking about. There's that moment, that moment of breakthrough where someone's bravery and their safety, like that ratio of bravery to safety hits the right number and they just spill their guts on the table and you're able to actually draw each other to the gospel and you actually pray for each other and you actually challenge each other and there's real life and growth and movement. I think most of us have experienced that at least a few times in our walk in faith. Beloved, that is to be the norm of the life of the church. That we create environments that encourage each other to grow in safety, to grow in bravery, so that our real hearts may be brought to the surface and we can see the power and truth of the gospel worm its way to the depths of our hearts. You are the hands and feet of Jesus to sanctify and disciple and challenge and grow your brothers and sisters. You are. And that takes prioritizing space, time, commitment. It looks like actually making the most of your time for the gospel. We don't just gather together to hang. We gather around the gospel of Jesus. So, am I really just saying the work of the church is sharing the gospel with the lost and with each other? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're getting at. I know I could have said that probably a lot faster, but beloved, what glorious work that is. That is anything but ordinary work. That is cosmic work. That is eternal work work. That is spiritual work. And hear this, beloved of Jesus, that is spiritual warfare. Now, I know that is strong and dramatic language, but I stand by it. Jesus is not about the work of playing nice with Satan and the curse. When Jesus described his own ministry, I love this, the way Mark describes it. Jesus says, no one comes into a strong man's house and robs him or he'll be beat up he comes and he ties the guy up and then he can rob him blind and the guy can't do anything about it. And that teaching, Satan's the strong man. His possessions are the earth, the curse. But Jesus comes in and beats up the strong man and takes whatever he wants. Jesus is not here to play nice with Satan. Jesus is not here to play nice with the reality of the curse. He's here to destroy Satan and the curse. Go and read Revelation. The end of Satan, the end of the curse is not pleasant. He cast them into fire to burn for eternity. It says the smoke of their destruction rises up forever. Christ has strong opinions 
about Satan and what Satan has done to his beloved creation. And his work in this world is to utterly destroy the reality of the curse and bring about the perfection he designed for reality. Beloved, you are included in that work. The kingdom of God has invaded this cursed and broken world and you are the forward forces liberating occupied peoples from their oppressors. And church, hear this. We win. The church will triumph over the power of the curse. That end is set in stone. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. The battle's already won. You just gotta carry it out. You just gotta get out there and get the work done. I skipped my favorite line in our text, so I'm going to use this to land us. Jesus says this to Peter in the midst of his confession. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of death will not overpower it. Here's the thing. Gates in ancient warfare, those are a weapon. But they're a defensive weapon. Go back and like, go on Google today and read about like ancient city gates and how they were used in warfare and stuff. Like it's, it's brutal, right? Like they would build little holes so they could pour, pour boiling oil on people trying to knock down the door and stuff like that. Like it's brutal how effective of a weapon good gates are. But at the end of the day, you don't take your gates with you when you're attacking. They stay at home because they're a defensive Weapon Gates don't advance. They try and hold back the advance of the army. Beloved, you are that army. The kingdom of God has advanced into this sinful world, and it is winning. Death itself, death itself cannot hold back the kingdom of God, and it cannot hold back the church of Jesus. The gates of Hades will not triumph because the church will crash them down. And even death itself is defeated by the power of Jesus. Amen? Beloved, Jesus is triumphant. His person and his work were and are sufficient to destroy Satan, to destroy the curse. And you, beloved of Jesus, you are his church. You get to join in that work. You get to be a part of that work. Don't miss out on it. Because this is the thing, this is the thing that I think us, and I'm going to be brutal for a second, us as modern, western, comfortable, lazy Christians, this is the part that is dangerous for us. The battle is already won. Christ has already conquered. Satan will be defeated. The end will come. That is not in question. Which means you can sit on your butt and do nothing. You can live in comfort. You can hide away in your Christian cloister and enjoy your Christian subculture and live your life quietly, only ever listening to Joy FM and never engaging your lost neighbors and never speaking the gospel. And at the end of days, Christ will still reign triumphant and Satan will still be destroyed and death will still be defeated. And let's be honest, there's some appeal to that, to sitting on our rumps and our comfort and not engaging in the work. But beloved, the work of the church is beautiful, cosmic, sacred work. Why would you miss out? Why would you, why would you miss out on that kind of work? Don't you want to be a part of the triumphant kingdom? 
Don't you want to march with Christ over those broken gates and see the dead set free? See the oppressed brought from death to life? Don't you want to see the power of God in your midst? Why would we miss out on that? How on earth, how on earth do the comforts of this world matter more than that? How can that possibly be? I'm going to end us with this. Beloved, you are the hands and feet of Christ. You are doing his work here and now while you await his return. So I'm going to end us by reading a poem from a Roman Catholic theologian named uh, Teresa of Avila. She lived during the time of the Reformation, and she was a, a mystic and kind of crazy. I would not suggest you build your systematic theology off her teaching. But her, her worshipful experience of Christ is really beautiful, and she wrote this poem about the work of the church. Chris, if you want to come on up, we're going to move into our response time. She says this, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to go and do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on all of earth except yours. Beloved, you've been made the body of Christ. His hands, his feet to do his work in this world. What a glorious mission. What an amazing privilege. Let's not miss out. Join with me in song, and then we'll take communion and end out our time.